And there's also just different versions of different people, you know, really being holy in their way. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Mara Farrow. Before becoming a novelist, she worked as a local reporter and advertising copywriter. Her years of dating confusion and spiritual seeking inspired her to write The Grace Crasher. This debut novel was selected for Best of 2017 Romance Category by Catholic Reads. It also received the Catholic Writers Guild seal of approval. Mara is happily married and is currently working on her next novel. She enjoys people and books that blend funny with dysfunctional. We're so excited to have Mara Farrow on the show today. And Mara, I'm really looking forward to hearing the literature that you brought for us. Thank you. This is from, it's called A Perfect Marriage by Kate Kerrigan. Just FYI, it was originally published as Recipe for a Perfect Marriage. So I don't know if they thought that sounds too much like a cookbook, we're going to shorten it. But either one, it's the same book, Kate Kerrigan. Um, And I think it's actually not too expensive on Kindle now. So go look at that. But anyway, just to give you a quick little rundown of what's happening. um, This married couple, they're they're elderly and the husband named James is lying in bed dying of cancer, basically. It takes place in the 30s and his wife has never said, I love you. And through most of the marriage, she has been faithful, but held on to memories of this young love relationship she had. And then that didn't work out. And it was sort of an arranged marriage. And so she's been physically faithful, but she's had this romantic fantasy in her head. So that's kind of the background. So he's lying in bed, she's taking care of him. And James, the husband says, tell me you love me. I was stunned. James had broken the understanding that had existed between us for over 50 years, our unspoken contract. He was my husband, but my heart had always belonged to another man. James knew that. I looked at this man I had known all of my life, this man I did not love, but with whom I had lived for longer than my mother, my father, my child. This man who I had married as a stranger, yet who had become my oldest friend, the person I had tried to keep myself hidden from, and yet who knew me better than anyone. All that was left was this barely breathing sliver of soul asking for love, not asking if I loved him or had I ever loved him, but just to say the words, I love you to him once. That once would be enough to set him free. In that moment, what had been impossible all my life now seemed so simple. I did not have to love James to tell him I loved him. I just had to say the words, I love you. And that's in quotation, so she's actually saying it. Briefly, James opened his eyes and his mouth closed around my name for the last time. In the moment he was gone, there was a revelation. As I had said the words, I love you to my husband for the first time, I realized they were true. 
I held him for one hour and I said the words, I love you, I love you, I love you, over and over into our empty room. And I imagined them carrying his soul in a stream of words out through the window and way up to heaven. How many words does it take to carry a soul to heaven? How many I love yous? It should have felt like I was saying it too late. But it didn't, and that was the greatest revelation of all. James had been the love of my life. That is gut wrenching. <laughs> and wow. Where were you at in your life when you read this? Um, I was married and I'd probably been married about seven years, and I didn't get married until I was 40. And my husband and I started dating, I think I was almost 38. So just to put that in context, I was not someone who, you know, married the guy she had a huge crush on in high school, you know. So and by, at this point in my life, I mean, by the time I got married, I knew I had learned some hard lessons that, um, you know, love is different from a crush. So I, I knew that. And, and I mean, it took me a long time to figure that out. But by the time I figured it out and sort of had a spiritual awakening, you know, by the time I met my husband, I was able to see what a good person he was. So I think that when I read this, and I was not in an arranged marriage, nothing like that. I, my husband and I tell, tell each other we love each other all the time, but I could see in an exaggerated way how the novel was trying to say that, you know, love is, it's not just what's floating around in our head or in our fantasies. It's, and she explains this in other parts of the book, you know, she says, as she looks back, every time I planted a head of lettuce for my husband, I was saying I loved him, even though I didn't say it until he was on his deathbed. You know, every time I knit, um, what do you, like a doily or whatever for the back of his, you know, recliner. And again, this was, you know, this storyline was in the 1930s. Um, the difference between fantasy relationships and real relationships. And here she'd been carrying around this fantasy relationship in her head, which was based on a real, you know, like teenage relationship she had. And you find out at another point in the story, like, I won't give away too much, but that that guy really wasn't such a wonderful character. So I just feel like, I don't know, as I get older, I like the stories that are the slow burn or the, who is it, the Colonel Brandon's and Sense and Sensibility, the, you know, where it's, or um, what's the other book, Far From the Madding Crowd. It's sort of like a, a love square. And um, I forget the the farmer's name. I feel like it starts with a J, but anyway, finally he gets Bathsheba and he was just this like kind of quiet, steady presence through the whole novel. And, you know, she's in this other like love triangle thing. And, and I guess that's a roundabout way of saying that. Well, I do like love stories. I like the love stories now that are quieter and based on slow revelations and just actions and character, which I know can sound boring, but I think that's more interesting to me now than when, you know, what I may have been drawn to when I was like 20. Mm. Well, you mentioned Colonel Brandon in Sense and Sensibility. And of all of Austin's work, Sense and Sensibility is, it fights with persuasion for being the top mm -hmm. of my list. Yeah. And, but Colonel Brandon's character is so incredible. And like you talk about it, like a slow burn in the romantic sense, but there's also, like his his love has this incredible depth. Yes. For for not just um his love interest but for many other people as well. 
and that it's rooted in this kind of honor and honesty and there's nothing flashy about it. No. I mean, even when he gave the, um, oh, what do they call it? You know, when you get the position as a, um, it wasn't called a priest, but in the Church of England to the, um, was it the Hugh Grant character? I'm getting all, <laughs> you know, he wasn't called Hugh Grant. The mm. Hugh Grant character. I mean, even the way he treated other men was, I'm just going to kind of quietly do the right thing in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's the thing is and is that there's virtue in the love that it's not like you were saying it's not this crush it's not just this overwhelming emotionalism almost mm-hmm. that there's there's something more to it there well and also you know in the excerpt that you read when you talk about that planting lettuce and knitting a doily all these acts of service. Mm were acts of love. And, oh, I just, I love that contrast. I love that contrast. And also, I mean, I haven't read the book that you read the excerpt from, but it seems to me that it's easier to carry on that kind of fantasy relationship with someone who isn't actually there, that you don't see all their faults. Yes. And so how how can a person that's right in front of you, you know, with their zits and their, mm-hmm. you know, in their pajamas compete with that right. fantasy? And the fantasy is something that it could be based on a real person, but it's sort of like the the reality of the person is the tip of the iceberg, but the the iceberg under the water is what you've just created in your own mind about the person. Mm. Which really is a way of objectifying someone. And I mean, I did that for years, you know, and, and was, I mean, I got hurt too in the process. And I, I think, you know, I tried to put some of those just general principles in the grace crash or in a fictional form. Um, but I kind of lost my train of thought, but basically just that I, you know, I used to think when I was a young woman, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm very deep and philosophical and, you know. Um, yeah, but really like so much of what drew me to certain types of people was just, I made a story in my head about who I wanted them to be and they weren't necessarily that kind of person. And in a way that, mm. that's not really being fair to them either, but I was, I was the one who was in the right, or I was the victim or I was the misunderstood one. But now I'm, that I'm older, I can look back and see it was more complex. Well, and the other thing is, is you you made a narrative about this other person in your head, but you also made a narrative about yourself mm-hmm. in your head that might have been inaccurate and a narrative about what your relationship with that person would look like. Yes. And just continued to spin the yarn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I d- did definitely notice this theme in the Grace Crashers, and I thought it was a really powerful theme to address. Because I think uh, I can see a lot of reflections in this in our kind of culture where we don't necessarily see people, that we see people now almost as, I think especially with the advent of social media, as a soundbite or a group of pictures, you know, and that it gives us that tip of the iceberg you were talking about. Yeah, and like an avatar almost. Mm. Or the little thumbnail or the, you know, whatever. Wow. And that really would affect, like you said, their dignity. 
in your eyes and in your experiences with them. How do we move beyond this? For me, I realized it's actually a way of being afraid of commitment because I realized if if I'm not always, but often, you know, attracted or chasing after or pining for someone who's not really available emotionally. I mean, they may seem that way at first, but if I'm really honest, they're not. That's a very convenient way to keep myself safe, but it's under the trappings of, you know, oh, I'm dating this person and, you know, yeah, they're a little emotionally unavailable, but we'll get past that or, or, and certainly a random crush on, oh, you know, the cute graphic artist, you know, at my company, like, <laughs> and we have these flirtations at the copier machine. It's, it's just a way of, you know, feeling fuzzy feelings, but not really having to risk relationship and honesty and, you know, um, commit vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in a way, like you said, it's, it's showing your own emotional lack of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. lack of availability. It's definitely a different kind of romance that you wrote. And in some ways I didn't even know if I would, I mean, it, it does have a love story, but in some ways I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily just immediately classify it as just strictly a romance genre, that it's a, it's a journey for your protagonist. Yes. I mean, I actually didn't write it strictly as a romance. I was thinking, you know, honestly, what I was really kind of thinking was more sort of a more serious chiclet, maybe. And I'm not even sure I hear that term chiclet anymore. Um, or women, you know, humorous women's fiction slash love story slash spiritual journey, but it's, there's not really a category exactly for that in Amazon. So, you know, and then other people started describing it as a romance. And, and one thing that I, someone used was, um, a romantic dramedy. And when I heard that, I was like, yeah, that is kind of what I was going for. But I didn't even realize at the time there was a term for that. But when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, because one of the authors I like, and she's not necessarily G-rated, but is Marion Keyes, K-E-Y-E-S. And she has that, you know, she gets classified as chiclet or women's fiction, um, more so chiclet, but it's, there's really deep things going on there. Like, I mean, addiction in uh, Rachel's holiday. And it's, it's funny. It's so funny. Her adventures in the rehab center. And she's like, I thought there was going to be a spa. Like, where's the spa, you know, or, and so, and, but then there's also, you know, sadness and dysfunctional family stuff, but, and yet her family is, you know, really fun and loving and, and having those two things in one novel as a reader, that's always attracted me that it's not just one or the other. Well, and in some ways that I I have to agree with that because it's so much more relatable Mm -hmm. that life isn't all dark and depressing and life isn't all funny and life is often heavy. And I think the mixture of those drives a much more compelling story and it helps show more authentic characters. Yeah. And one person I love who can do this so well is Ann Tyler. 
And I think she's coming out with a new book in, oh, I actually think this month, but you know, they, the publishers say March and you don't really know if it's going to be March, but um, she's another person who can do the humor and the sadness all at once. Mm. Yeah. I would love to read more books like that. I know my husband and I, my mom introduced us to K-dramas, Korean Mm -hmm. dramas. And I just figured that they would in my own ignorance, I imagined that they would be written like an American soap opera with Korean actors is what I was imagining they would be. And I was so wrong that the first one that we watched was called Crash Landing on You. And it was (laughs) great. Have you seen it? No, but it's a great, I'm just laughing at the title. It's a great title. Oh, and it, and it suits the story really well, but it does that. It mixes it has the drama, it has the romance, it has the comedy, it has the action, that it has something for everybody. And that through the the storyline, it allows them to develop a multitude of characters really well so that you feel like you know them. And I I just think that writing in that style can be so much more impactful. Mm Mm-hmm on the reader. And it also can give them a break. Like if you're having so much heavy, 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 it it can be hard as the reader because you just get emotionally exhausted. Yeah. And then you think, well, the word humor and humanity and, and, you know, Mm. there's some sort of Greek or Latin or something root there. That's obviously the same. Wow. Well, and, and it makes sense because, well, and that's one thing I've, I've noticed in watching The Chosen is that they show Jesus Christ having a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which he would have had to have had a sense of humor. I think God would have to have a sense of humor just to watch us. What we oh, <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Because uh, we we sure manage to be funny. Yes. So, whether we desire to or not. Why do you think that this particular passage that you read, did, how did it inspire you? It, I think it inspires me as a wife and a writer. And I mean, I, I, I had to skip over some lines just to get it, you know, a manageable word count because it's even better than what I'm reading. But um, as a wife, I guess the idea that, you know, just how many words does it take to carry a soul to heaven? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, if I read that as like the first line of a novel, I might be like, well, is that a little too sentimental? But because that comes after the whole novel where you see the actions that really both the husband and wife take to show towards each other, I think it just reminds me that even when, you know, I'm with my husband and I could be distracted or I'm, you know, I'm under pressure just from extended family dementia stuff. To remember that, you know, if I, I don't know, even if I just like make him oatmeal or something, like he can get excited about that and very appreciative. And I'm like, I feel like I'm being so crabby and self-involved, but those little things can make a difference. I guess also the surprise, how the character surprised herself by realizing, oh, I loved him all along. And somehow just saying the words at that late, late, point in the game, but it somehow pushed her through some illusions that she had about herself and her marriage to see the truth. So I guess it's like fake it till you, till you make it, you know, when she, when you're in the scene, it sounds like she thinks she doesn't love her husband. And then she says it and she realized 
oh, I loved him this whole time. And as a writer, I guess it inspires me because, again, this is just a small part of the book, but to me, that's a really interesting twist on the traditional love story where you're waiting for them to say, I love you. They do pretty early on in the game, and then it proceeds from there. And this is, oh, and I should also say, there's a whole other plot in this book that I'm not even talking about that's set in the present day. So the, the excerpt I read was from the, um, the around the, somewhere in the 1930s took place, but then there's the um, granddaughter of the woman whose perspective I just read from. She has her own storyline and it's also about marriage, but you know, I can only mm. read so much. So the way right. Kate Kerrigan weaves together the two plots is really interesting. Well, and it's interesting because most love stories, it's like, the love story ends at marriage mm-hmm. yeah. that, you know, it's all about the courtship and that's all the exciting part, you know, and then they live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And this kind of turns that whole scheme on its head. Yeah. And you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just not looking the right places, but I, I find it hard to find novels like that. I mean, they're, they're out there or at least within the quote romance genre. It's, I mean, I know they have like arranged marriage, um, that's kind of a, a you know subcategory within that, but I mean, I wish I could just find more novels just about marriage and and you know the the ebb and the flow. But I guess I don't know. I guess readers maybe like the be- the beginning part more. I don't know. <laughs> I think that people are drawn to it because there's more tension. Yes, but there is something like you said that slow burn mm-hmm. the. Well, and maybe maybe this is one of the ways that fiction can impact culture is, you know, I think that we can get caught in this kind of infatuation and crushes and that and, you know, mistaking that for committed love. Well, when that's the when that seems to be the narrative that has the most commercial power, Mm -hmm. then that's what you're going to see most of out there. Where does it give people hope? when they're right in the thick of marriage, you know, (laughs) if they might not be having warm fuzzies for their spouse, if it's just deep down dedication and the everyday life with little kids or with Mm -hmm. aging parents or the things, I think we all kind of fall for this narrative and part of it might be emotional immaturity, but something that occurred to me several years ago when one of my girlfriends got married is I was like, whoa, when you pick your spouse, you are picking the person who is more than likely going to go through all of the hardest things a person can experience together, that that's what you're picking. Mm-hmm. You're going to raise children together. You're probably going to lose your parents together. Every illness, every hardship. And even like it said in the book that she lived with her husband longer than her kids, longer than her parents. Yes. You're picking your partner to carry the cross, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe that's just not um, romantic in the general sense. Right. And I mean, I, you know, I, I like love stories where it is the beginning too. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. We do. But I mean, I think, I, I think that there's a, a variety of places where art can reflect life mm-hmm. in, other, in other segments as well. Yes. What drove you to write Grace Crasher? Oh, that's a good question. I guess the two char- the two main characters, the hero and the heroine, 
I had had kicking around in my head like for years and years and years and, or at least some version of them. And I actually wrote a novel when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17, somewhere in there, never published it, but they had the same names, Mark and Julia. And the novel was just like a cute guy moves across the street from this girl and, you know, they listen to the B-52s and they fall in love. Like that was kind of, I mean, this is from the eighties, you know, I was. I, I love the B-52s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rome is one of my favorite songs. So oh. that was kind of like the whole plot. I mean, you know, but they still kind of stuck in my head. And I mean, I just filed it away in, in a box. So that was floating around. And I also did know that I wanted to write a novel about making other people idols. In addition, when I was in my mid thirties, I had a a real spiritual awakening. You know, I was raised kind of nominally Catholic and I didn't have any bad experiences with that, but I mean, some of it definitely soaked in. I know that for sure, but I would say from the age of like, I don't know, 14, 15 until 33, 34, you know, I was probably more like would have considered myself, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious or kind of a little Unitarian flair there, just like whatever. And then, um, I just had some really hard experiences and that kind of drew me back to exploring, well, what higher power is out there? And I, I knew it was God and I never stopped believing in Jesus, you know, the Trinity, Jesus is the son of God, but it was, I was kind of like, well, it could be that, or it could be any other thing or everybody's right. La la la. And you know what? I, I get where people are coming from, where they, they want everyone to be right. So you don't need to disagree with anybody because I hate disagreeing and I do have that people pleasing thing. But what happened to me was I, I, I want to somehow write about this whole journey I went through because I, you know, I went to just these wonderful evangelical churches and I eventually became Catholic again, but just like being sort of um, a stranger in a strange land, observing these different types of churches and the activities they had and the church singles group and all of that. I was like, you know, there's funny stuff here. And there's also just different versions of different people, you know, really being holy in their way, but it could be someone who's singing praise and worship music, you know, that sounds like a rock concert, or it could be, you know, the, the Italian lady, you know, at a, at a Catholic church who I don't even quite understand, like, what is she, you know, like, why is she sitting by herself in the middle of church when there's no mass, like praying with those beads, like, what's going on with the beads? Like, I mean, I knew what it, it's a rosary, but just like, that's weird. And then, and I don't even think I went into that in the novel, but just at first being an outsider and observing these things. Cause I always was drawn to books where someone's pretending to be something else. And in the book at first, the main character, Julia is pretending to be an evangelical Christian really to get an apartment, which sounds like what kind of a jerky person would do that. But she's, She's trying to escape from her, you know, dysfunctional family and verbally abusive father. And, you know, things get really bad there. And she's like, I need a place. Oh, and by the way, this place happens to be just a couple blocks from my latest crush obsession, you know, who lives in the same neighborhood. And the landlady is very obviously born again Christian and seems to want that in a tenant. So, you know, she kind of starts the charade as often happens, sometimes what you're pretending to be, it kind of sinks into you more than you realize. The real key there is you're saying having the opportunity to observe 
a variety of different types of Christians mm-hmm. and n- not putting preconceived judgments on any of these groups as you're just witnessing their holiness mm-hmm. and their closeness to Christ or they're trying to grow closer to Christ. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about the book is it shows a variety of different people in their goodness and in their foibles, that there are people who act hypocritically in a variety of groups, in any group, because, hello, we're human, kind of fallen, just, just you know, a little bit, and uh, that that's what we fall into. But at the same token, there is so much goodness in so many people. I was grateful to hear your story because I had a similar experience that I was not practicing my faith for quite a while. I was raised Catholic. It was actually non-Catholic friends who invited me to a Bible study who were very instrumental in my returning to the Catholic Church. And this particular denomination is actually incredibly anti-Catholic in their doctrine. Mm -hmm. And yet the goodness and the welcoming and the friendship and the reading scripture together helped strengthen my own faith. I absolutely saw God working through those relationships. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we could certainly all learn a lot from each other. I think it points out the fact that we are all drawn to relationship, mm-hmm. that we we can make our camps, but the more we dig in and stop seeing the humanity of the other, how much harder it would be for us to live our own life and our own path when we just clamp down. And not saying there aren't disagreements about doctrine and things like that that do need to be discussed, but I think with the vast majority of humanity, we probably have a lot more in common than we do different. (laughs) Well, especially now when it just seems like, I don't know, I get this feeling to be any type of Christian, you know, you almost feel like you're being grouped into this, I don't know, dangerous person or non-person category. And maybe that I'm just being paranoid and looking online too much because it's not like that's happened to me so much in my personal life. So I kind of feel like, you know, I want to draw together with my Catholic friends and my evangelical friends because we, you know, we have more in common sometimes I think than, you know, other people who just think we're crazy or not even just crazy, but, you know, dangerous and you need to be kind of corralled in your own little small part of society. The sad thing is, is with the kind of dividing into camps and stuff, that then even our secular friends don't realize that there's still a lot we have in common. Mm -hmm. Obviously, our faith does change a good deal of our lives, but we are still all living on earth. We are all looking for goodness. I, I just, I really enjoyed your book showing these authentic relationships between different Well, thank you. I mean, I tried. I mean, now, you know, because that was a few years ago, and I wonder sometimes, oh, I should have had it be more this or that, or, you know, there are little things I would change, but um, it's out there now. And, you know, at least I I did try. I mean, I think that's natural with writers. You look back and, you you know, want to change things. But then we would you know, we would all just have one book, which so far is all I have. So maybe that explains that, you know, but. um, I think you're right that you want to go back and you want to critique your work over and over and over again. But recognizing that that work now has a life of its mm-hmm. own, it's doing its own thing now. Yes. It's so strange how that happens. And I certainly am not a ex- an example of how to do marketing because I really didn't do much at all. But you know, joining the the Catholic Writers Guild is kind of like the one 
really super smart thing I did because what happened was just like one person would tell another, oh, I read this book, The Grace Crasher, or I I, I don't remember who it was who was speaking during one of our online conferences and they mentioned my book and they were like, oh, you should read it. We can geek out about the characters. And I'm sitting there in my bedroom listening to this online and thinking like, wow, like these people are like geeking out over my characters. I mean, what? And I mean, I have, that book has been out. Like, I guess I published it, the ebook and like, I think it was November, December, 2016. And then the paperback was January, 2017. And at this point it was like 2020 or something. And it just makes you realize, like, I just, anyone listening to this, you know, if you've self-published or even traditionally published, but it's, it's not having a lot of traction. I mean, weird little things can happen where you just need one or two cheerleaders, you know, to talk about it. And like, it's like, wait, why did I get a few more sales this month? And then you find out it's just because one person was talking to one other person. Like, it's really weird. I mean, I'm certainly not, you know, financially successful, but I mean, I, I sell copies every month and I, and it's not because I'm a good marketer or keep up to date with social media or anything. It's just very kind people talking to each other, I guess. I don't know. Well, and that's the great thing about why I wanted to do this podcast mm. is just so we could talk about books and talk about stories and all of these things that matter and getting people to dig in. Yeah. To dig into something that's longer than 120 characters and think about something and have a conversation with another human being. <laughs> so, yeah. No. I'm just really glad that you came. What impact would you be hoping that the book has? Well, one of the things you already said is just realizing how different types of Christians can be similar and also how they can be in conflict. And I mean, ultimately, the main character, Julia, I mean, she did make a hard choice and she wasn't sure how that would be accepted. And, you know, she kind of felt at the time that it wasn't even her choice, but sort of God leading her to something. But I just hope that, you know, someone reading the book could say, say, you know, an evangelical Christian was reading the book and could be like, oh, you know, this person's Catholic, but they actually do have a relationship with Jesus, you know, or a Catholic could read it and realize like, oh, you know, this, this non-denominational church, like some of the people here, they're really following God's will for them. Now we could get into, you know, a whole bunch of other issues like well which what was the first church and what was the more historical one, but I mean I'm just saying within the context of, you know, people and characters and where they're coming from, just seeing how they live out their faith. And another thing, I just I don't know, I like to be able to make people laugh. And I'm I don't think I'm that funny in person. I mean, I know my father was, my brothers very funny, but I I like to try to make people laugh in writing, and that's just something I like to try to do. And I enjoy as a reader when that happens. So th there was that floating around, I'm sure. Well, and what made you choose fiction over like doing this as a memoir? I just, you know, I, since a very, very early age have read fiction and novels and fairy tales. And I'm just remembering um, Charlotte's Web. And, you know, like, I think that was my first chapter book, or maybe it was Trumpet of the Swan. It was Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White. So for me, that's just like my language, more so than mm. a memoir. 
not that I, I mean, I've read a few memoirs, but I'm, I'm always more drawn to fiction because sometimes I think with fiction, like the opposite of what you would expect, but it's easier sometimes I think to experience truth in fiction or, you know, we're basically just using make-believe and fantasy, but it's, if the author can really get you in somebody's head, you can learn certain truths that for me anyway, I don't pick up as, as easily or as vividly as I would, you know, from an essay or a, a lecture or something. The empathy. Mm, empathy. Well, and maybe in some ways we're actually more, I don't know, as a writer, maybe we're more self-aware when we're writing our characters than in if we wrote a memoir. Uh-huh. Because I feel like if you're really writing about yourself, that there's a part of you you're always going to want to protect. There's a part of you you're always going to want to hold back. Yes. Whereas if it's this fictional character, you can let them go to all of those places that are just too hard for you to go for yourself. Mm-hmm. Also, I think my fictional characters are more interesting than I am. I mean, I'm kind of <laughs> boring, but even the things Julia did, like, I, I don't think I would have had the courage. And some of the things were actually a little, you know, zany and not really appropriate. But I'm just saying, you know, you can put your characters out in a world that I'm like, well, I, I'm comfortable sitting on the couch and reading a book and sipping tea. But like, you know, these characters can can go out on these adventures. Well, are you writing anything right now? I am trying. And I just I ask anyone listening to this to please pray for me because I've, I've been kind of stuck. And but I am I'm writing a novel or maybe it'll be a novelette. And it it takes place in the late 80s, college in the late 80s. It's tentatively tentatively called my 1989 Rewind friendship is going to be a big theme. I'm trying to kind of connect it to the Grace Crasher, but maybe about the mom in college or the mom's friend or something. But I'm struggling a little. When it comes out, it would be under my same Marifaro pen name that I have now, I think. But I find what's what had happened to me is that I think I'm just I was letting just some personal extended family things kind of emotionally take up too much space in my brain. And then with the lockdowns and everything, you would think that would give you tons of time to write. But for me, I kind of lost a lot of things I would do just to kind of feed my brain and my imagination. I mean, things are changing now. I know I used to go to certain Bible studies. Oh, they're, we don't do that anymore. They're on zoom or, you know, um, I used to go to an in-person writers group where we just write together in a cafe. Oh, that get, that gets all canceled. So I'm just trying to find my bearings and I have been more productive, you know, the past few months and and getting some things in balance. And sometimes I'm like, oh, am I just repeating the same themes? And I don't know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. You know, I mean, I know some of my favorite writers, there's a lot of similarities, but anyway, so, you know, I am trying to write something new. I have like 30,000 words, but I need more. Yeah. So that's a decent amount, but you know, it took me a while to get those down and that's not quite enough for a novel. I mean, it's getting closer. So anyway, I know that doesn't sound very encouraging. So I, I ask for prayers. Anyone listening, help me to move forward and be productive and not get caught up in perfectionism. Mm. Well, and I think that that's a battle for any writer. Mm-hmm. I'm friends with a local writer who does short stories here in Spokane. And he's told me, you keep working on your story and you keep working on your story and you keep working on your story. And I'm like, but how do you know when it's actually ready? He's like, well, you'll never actually tell yourself it's ready. He said, but when you realize you're just changing a few words here and there, 
that's where you just have to let it go. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Right. Well, and I can see how it would be hard because I know, like you were saying, all these social things that you did to feed your mind mm-hmm. and with the lockdowns and stuff. I know I wrote my novel that I've been working on during NaNoWriMo and all of those events being canceled for in-person for two years was really hard for me. It's like when you get those things in place in your creative process and you're like, okay, this is what feeds my creative process and then gone. It's yeah, pretty challenging. Yeah. And for me, there were other issues where I, I mean, this isn't the case now, but I was doing caregiving and just things that were emotionally tiring and exhausting. And I would just come home feeling very drained. But then I think, you know, am I just rationalizing? I mean, is there something wrong with my project? And I'm using all these things as excuses, but I need to actually look at the actual work and ask myself, you know, is it is it time to put this aside? Is it time for a new thing? I don't, I don't know. Those are you know, I hope to figure that out in the next few months because I want to either get more momentum or let it go and that's okay and start something new. But I, I really do want to move forward. So we'll see. And I think you will. I think you will. I really enjoyed Grace Crasher. Thank you. So I think we're to the point where we should play our rando round Uh-oh. and get to know just a few more things about you with our hundred overcaffeinated questions. So you get to pick your dice. Would you like tie-dye or pink with mermaid sparkles? I'm going to choose tie-dye. All right. I love tie-dye. Can I tell you the great thing about tie-dye? Yes. It hides stains. Oh. <laughs> so let's see what we get here. I've got 17. Do you garden? I do not garden. I like the idea of gardening. And I buy plants from the grocery store, if that counts. But I don't think it does. Are they indoor plants or outdoor indoor plants? Indoor plants. If you, can keep, if you can keep indoor plants going, I think you're doing good. Because I can do them outdoors, but indoors, if it's not a succulent, it's going to die <laughs> in my house. So I think you're doing indoor gardening. 14. If you could have a lifetime supply of one thing, what would it be? Well, the obvious thing would be books. But I mean, I think that's sort of an easy thing. So, um, I mean, an easy thing to choose within the context of this conversation, you know, I'm going to say stationary supplies. (laughs) Like I think if, if I could just like work in staples, but not actually have to be a cashier or stock things, but just like play around with post-it notes and journals and notebooks and pens, I would be a very happy girl. So, you know, once upon a time, a lifetime ago, I worked at staples. Ah, And I got to work in the copy center. So I actually got to play with all Mm -hmm. those things and like make booklets and stuff. It is kind of a fun job, actually. (laughs) 79. Good year. What is your least favorite job you've ever had? I think that would be when I was a technical writer for a computer software company. And it was actually my first job out of college. And it was just kind of like, well this is a nearby job and I can actually get this job and, you know, I want to eventually pay my own rent and get my own apartment. So I guess I'll take this job. It was one of those things. But um, for me to write about like computers, (laughs) you know, it just wasn't that fun. Um, And then I also think there have been other jobs, parts of other jobs where, you know, you're writing for a mark. I was writing for a marketing department or an ad agency where if the, you know, the deadlines are, are coming up really fast and I, I 
I just feel stuck or I'm writing about like the business world. It's like, how did I even, <laughs> I wanted to be a writer, but you know, I can't support myself writing fiction. So here I am writing about like, I don't know, a fax machine. I mean, if anyone even remembers what those are, like, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, that was hard too, but there were other parts of those jobs I really liked. It's fun working on a team with creative people. That's always fun. Even if it is fax machines. Yes. I remember when fax machines were like high tech, mm -hmm. you know, ooh, you're getting a fax. People don't get excited about faxes anymore. Our digital world is so sad. Yes. 18. What gives you peace? I do think prayer gives me peace. And I, I mean, one of my favorite things, and this was even before I kind of became a practicing Catholic again, is to just sit alone in a beautiful old Catholic church and just, because you're really not alone, you know, but not to get too theological and just and smelling the wood polish and, you know, looking at the stained glass. And I like it when I'm like the only one there. Not that I dislike people, but there's something very special sometimes of looking around being like, I'm the only one here. And there's nothing else to think about or listen to except like I'm sitting here in the presence of God and I can just pray or I can just breathe, you know, that gives me mm, just having some space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is something about the smell of a Catholic church. And I think what part of it is, is the old incense oh, that probably. it doesn't need to have had to have burned anytime recently, but it's like seeped into the walls and the architecture. Mm -hmm. And so that with the wood polish and the and especially if they use old beeswax candles oh. that you can smell that too. I, I worked at a church supply store. And so like you learn which denominations use which candles that have what percentage of beeswax in them. Wow. Like it's, yeah, yeah. It's very fascinating. Seven. What is your favorite spot to vacation? You know, I haven't been on a vacation in so long. It's pathetic, but, um, you know, when I was little, my family would sometimes go to a little place in um, Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. And it's not actually on a beach, but I don't know why it's called Beach Lake. I mean, there is a lake there that's called Beach Lake. So that could be the reason. But it was this little cabin. There were a series of cabins and they had two big lakes. And it was very beautiful. And it's just a slower pace. And actually, several years ago, I went back there, just me and my husband. And we rented a cabin there. And it was really interesting to come back many years later, being married and older to the place that I had gone when I was like seven years old. And I would, I think I'd like to go back there one day, actually. And at that point, you know, my father had passed away and he loved going there and he used to fish on the lake and he would take us, you know, with him too. And I don't think my mom went, I think she was like afraid of the boat. I don't really remember. But anyway, when, um, when I went there, Several years ago, after my father passed away, he had this like where he called it a worry stone. It was like this little rock that had this indentation. And he was like, I carry it in my pocket. And if I touch it with my thumb and that indentation, it's kind of like relaxing. Well, I had found that stone in his jewelry box or not jewelry box, but whatever, where he kept his tie clips. So when I went with my husband after he had passed away, I had that worry stone. We went on the boat and I threw it into the lake where he loved to fish. And I'm like, now that stone is in this lake, you know, where he seemed to, you know, relax and have a good time. Because my father was a little high strung. <laughs> and um, I don't know, to me, it seemed like it came full circle to kind of bring that stone to a place that he loved and throw it in the water and let it go. 
Well, and that must have been so meaningful if he was, you know, someone who was subject to a lot of stress to be able to go to with him to that special place that was a slower pace. Yes. I mean, even though he wasn't physically with me, but I had that little rock. Oh, that's so nice. Number 16. This is a very important question. I want you to be prepared for this. Okay. Do you prefer French fries or tater tots? French fries. French fries. Tater tots remind me too much of the school cafeteria. They would undercook them and they were too soggy. So, yeah. It's true. What do you put on your fries? You know, usually ketchup. But I try to get the organic ketchup that doesn't have all the corn syrup added. And it's hard to find, but you have to search it out. They have it on Thrive Market. Oh, okay. Because if you're and it's cheap on there. If you're eating French fries, you know, it's really important because they're so healthy to have the healthy ketchup. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to ask you a question. Are you a puddle of ketchup and dipper or are you a spray the ketchup all over the fries person? A dipper. You're a dipper. See, I'm a dipper too, but my husband is Canadian, and I don't know if this is a Canadian thing. I know this is how it was in Germany. He sprays the ketchup all over the French fries and then, like, eats them with a fork sometimes. Oh. Cool. And I'm just like, I don't know that that's right. I, don't I mean, this is French fries we're talking about here, people. I have to say I'm a tater tot girl, though, when I can get my hands on them. And I don't actually eat a lot of potatoes, mm -hmm. which is sad. I like French fries, but tater tots that are properly done. Yeah, not yeah. School cafeteria French fries. I was fries. scarred by the school cafeteria cooking of the tater tots, but I think as a concept, they sound very tasty. <laughs> the concept of the tot. Well, I think we're ready for our final question now, and that is, what gives you hope right now? You know, I what gives me hope is I feel like for me as an individual and also as a world, the past couple of years we've been in a desert, but I feel like we're coming out of that. You know, so, but I feel like for me, you know, at least for my surroundings, um, coming out of the lockdown isolation mentality, I feel like, you know, there's going to be some sun and light coming up. And I also feel like with some things in my personal life, that's going to be the case too. I hope so. Yeah. And I just want to focus more on gratitude. Like, I mean, just from what we were talking about earlier, just the fact that I did like, marry a really nice, smart, godly man. If you could see some of the situations I was getting myself into as a younger woman, like that is such a miracle. And, and you know, I need to have more gratitude for that too, because that is a miracle. And just the fact that I did finally, you know, get a book out there is a miracle too, because I was really perseverating a lot, I guess. So. Well, and we look forward to more books in the future. That's for sure. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And I've enjoyed our time and just honest conversation. I have as well. It was I've never done anything quite like this before, but it was it was an adventure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And if someone wanted to see what work you have coming up in the future, where could they follow you? Um you can look on marafaro.com and um, you know, you can follow me on Amazon, you know how you can follow an author. And I am also on Instagram as Marafaro author. M-A-R-A-F-A-R-O. I'm not on any of those things as much as I should be, but you know, I would certainly post when something new comes out on one of those places. Or Facebook um, under, I have an author page, also Mara Farrow author. All right. Well, thank you so much once again, Mara. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.